Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, January 12th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, of course. Meg and I just got back from JPM Week in San Francisco, so apologies to Damian, who wasn't there. But today's show is going to be all about what we heard, what we saw, what we liked, what we didn't like. And maybe the most intriguing question is, where is Biotech's annual convocation going? But first, a word from our sponsor. At Tradeoffs, we like to get under healthcare's hood. There are just all these sort of leaky pipes across the healthcare system, which, if tightened, would lead you to save money. We dig into the numbers behind the policy. I will admit, I am a fangirl of the Congressional Budget Office. This <laughs> Who's not? Yes, they're amazing. When they drop their numbers, we all go running, right? Data, research, it all informs our journalism and the stories we tell. Healthcare, policy, people. Subscribe now to Tradeoffs. So wait, what do you mean, where is the convocation going? Meg, you don't read our newsletters? I do. I've just literally <laughs> been traveling since like I left San Francisco <laughs> and then I saw my children for the first time in three days. So oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Right. I've oh, not yeah. read today's Excuses. newsletter. <laughs> I meant to. <laughs> well, uh, we are recording this podcast on Wednesday afternoon because of all the travel. Um, but yeah, so I have an item in uh, today's readout newsletter that basically says that J.P. Morgan executives are considering relocating the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference uh, out of San Francisco. Uh, and one of the leading contender cities is Miami. Wow. Okay, wait, how did you find this out? Is this some, can you divulge how the sausage of your journalism was made here? <laughs> uh of course, I can't because I, this has been a topic for so long. It is. Like, it is. People so hate I, I, San Francisco. This has been. This has been. So, there's been sort of consistent speculation and chatter about this, and it's started to pick up. And I, I kind of heard about it uh, before I even got here, and then when I did, when I was here, and I want to say it's all very squishy. Um, hence, why this is a newsletter, a highly speculative newsletter item, and not a. Uh, not a big, not a confirmed doctor, not a big story, sighting, which we will get to um, later. <laughs> you know, and so you know, and I think what's you know, and as you mentioned, Meg, you know, this is you know the relocation of JPM Week or and or speculation about where it might go is kind of biotech's favorite parlor game. We we play it all the time. What I feel, what I am hearing is different this year is that this is actually coming from J.P. Morgan executives, right? It's inside the bank hmm. that they are actually now thinking about it. Whereas before they were sort of very dismissive about this idea of of leaving San Francisco. The call is coming from inside the bank. Can we take a step back? I mean, I, I would imagine a, a lot of our listeners are extremely familiar with JP Morgan, but if anybody is very interested in this biotech podcast, but is not super familiar with J.P. Morgan. I don't know, Damien, can you give us a rundown of like what J.P. Morgan is and like why San Francisco is so closely associated with its identity? Sure. So for years and years and years, I mean, there are a multitude of investor conferences throughout the year. Most of them are relatively boring, relatively staid uh, events in which public company CEOs give presentations that mostly recap things that they've already said. However, the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, I think by virtue of being in January, 
has over the years become, I mean, people have referred to it as the Super Bowl of biotech, having been there, it maybe is more akin to the Comic-Con of biotech, but has become <laughs> the biggest meeting in the, the pharmaceutical the industry. I think. <laughs> In the calendar, I think, like I said, by virtue of just, it starts off the year. And so for years and years and years, it not only was this conference held by the bank JP Morgan, where these presentations would take place, but became this entire constellation of, I was going to say parasitic, but let's say um, symbiotic micro-conferences that would take place (laughs) around it to, to where the phrase JPM week became this kind of like metonym for this whole kick annual kickoff um, that the industry has. And it's been in San Francisco. When when was the first, J- what are we on? Like the 32nd JP Morgan or something? Uh, that is a good question. I think this is the, <laughs> I'm going to have to look this up now. I think, I want to say it's the 41st. Yes, it is the, it is the 40, we, we just, we just completed, or we are completing the 41st conference. Wow. It is older than Damien and me. Only narrowly. Um, and it has it been in the Western St. Francis that entire time? It has. It has been in the it has been in the Western St. Francis Hotel, which is an uh an older hotel. It's a it's a it's a nice hotel. Uh it's just maybe not perfectly suited for thousands and thousands of people. Um and that's been that's always been one of the complaints. Well right. So linking that history to what you're talking about exactly is that the Western St. Francis, that J.P. Morgan and and really more largely J.P.M. Week have outgrown the relative confines that they've already they've always inhabited. So that the conference itself is probably too big for the Western San Francisco. The J.P.M. Week apparatus is almost certainly too big for Union Square and like the municipal services and availability of even remotely affordable hotels that San Francisco Mm. can offer, which leads to, as you mentioned, this annual parlor game of people being like, you're never going to believe how much I paid to sit at a chair for 30 minutes, or you're never going to believe, you know, whatever indignity people perceive themselves to have suffered at JP Morgan (laughs) always leads to, man, they really got to move this thing. What about, you know, and then just name your city. And I thought what was striking about, um, you know, what you wrote Adam, is that it advances this conversation not just because it's apparently J.P. Morgan executives to whom or among whom this conversation is happening, and also that they seem to have maybe settled on a city to choose in the form of Miami, but that, you know, as we reported a long time ago, one of the things that was keeping J.P. Morgan in San Francisco is they had this long-term agreement with the West in San Francisco to keep hosting it there. And one thing you wrote is that apparently the conversation has turned to, well, they could just buy it out, which for some reason I had never considered before, even though I know J.P. Morgan has like more <laughs> yeah. money than God. Um, but if that were to take place. You know, Jamie Dimon, Jamie Dimon, who runs J.P. Morgan CEO, he could just write a check. Right, exactly. If that were to take place, they really could change this, which would, I mean, it would be, well, I don't know, you guys were just there. How much of a change would that be if suddenly this annual convocation weren't in San Francisco? Yeah, I have like I have two two or three reactions to it. The first one is like, oh my gosh, who doesn't want to go to Miami in January? That sounds amazing. The second is I think a lot of the complaints around San Francisco, you hear a lot of people complaining about how many homeless people are there, the smell on the street, the fact that you might find really gross things on the sidewalk uh, because of that population. And that that Arguing has always seemed like yes, like it's 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 uncomfortable, but it's also so sad, obviously. And we have increasingly in in previous years seen efforts to try to raise money to you know 
to donate to services that help the homeless population. Um, but it, it's just, it, it's like, okay, so nobody likes this, so let's move to Miami. I mean, it's that's certainly not the only reason. It's that the city and the setting are not big enough for what this conference has become. But then also it's just sort of like, okay, so let's move to Miami, this glitzy place where hopefully we won't have to deal with any of that. I don't know. It just feels like, oh. Um, and then the third thing is, I wonder, would they do it in another hotel or would it be in a, con- a convention center, which would just really change the the vibe of this whole thing? Um, I, but I mean, anywhere other than that, that four block radius would change it. You know, obviously, JPM is JPM week if we if we sort of talk about it as this kind of traveling caravan of of uh, biotech and pharma stuff that goes on all the ancillary events. Obviously, that's a, a considerably larger than just one bank bringing its clients to town. Um, so yeah, I, I would imagine there's a lot of logistics that have to be, that have to be uh, ironed out. Now, one thing I didn't mention is you're going to have to have some patience because we're not talking about JPM 24 in Miami. JPM 24 next- What are we talking about? Next year. will be here in San Francisco. What I'm hearing is that at the earliest, it would be 2025. Oh, that's not that far away. Okay, so let's let's go into like what what- we experienced this year. And, and I'll also ask Damien, like, what he experienced from afar. But Adam, like, what was your sort of like snap reaction to, you know, how many people were there, just sort of the general vibe of, of the conference? You know, my feeling was that the general vibe was pretty upbeat. And even considering the fact that it, it you know, rained every day, um, there was hail, there was thunder uh, on, I don't, Meg, did you get the flash flood warning on your cell phone on Tuesday? Oh, yeah, I did. Everyone got that. It was really weird watching everyone look at their cell phone at the same exact time. I I imagine that this is how the world will end. You're hoping it was going to be some big M&A. This is how the the world will end. We'll all look at our cell phones and then there'll be a bright flash and we'll all be gone. (laughs) Um, I hope it doesn't happen while we're in the West in St. Francis. (laughs) The The weather was bad. But I do feel like everyone that I encountered was not really bothered by the weather, was generally happy to be in town, happy to get back together as a sort of community of biopharma people. Um, after Obviously, after, you know, COVID made it virtual, you know, we were not here for the last two years because of COVID. Um, so that's sort of made up for the fact that we can get into this, um, kind of that it was, from a news perspective, it was not great because there wasn't very much news. Yeah, Damien, from afar, like, how did you observe what news was coming out of the conference? Right, well, traditionally, that Monday morning uh, of the conference is when everybody who has control over when they disclose something usually puts it out first thing Monday morning. And so we're used to this kind of rush and this, like, bolus of news. Often it's deals, sometimes it's things that clearly were incremental but probably happened within the past month or two months, and the, the powers that be decided, well, why not? Let's make a splash on the first day of J.P. Morgan. And maybe this is because being removed from the actual place, the time, place, and manner of it, which maybe has a sort of like delirious effect of making you think what's being announced is more important because it's at J.P. Morgan and so are you. For me, not being there, being from home, it all seemed pretty underwhelming, to be honest, which, I mean, whatever, you know, it, it probably doesn't really matter. This is all kind of window dressing to just like get conversations happening and, and you know, getting timeshare in the minds of people in the industry for whatever reason a company might have to do that. 
Um, I'm not saying anybody owes me anything or that I feel let down, but it did seem <laughs> like a little bit, <laughs> a little bit soft as far as JP Morgan's go. So Meg, let me turn that question to you because I, I spied you in the in the hotel you did. doing you doing to visit me. doing your thing, uh, you know, with interviewing CEOs. Um, so what was some of the highlights that you you know what did you hear that you that that sort of stood out to you over the last two days? Well, I mean, mine might be similar to yours. I think one of the most important um, appearances at this conference may have been for Chris Wiebacher, the new CEO of Biogen. Um, I mean, his appearance generally at the conference, not with me on CNBC, although I really enjoyed our interviews um, early on Monday morning. Uh, I think it was at 5.10 in the morning Pacific time. But it was after Dan O'Day uh, from Gilead's, which we started at 4.50, which was amazing. Um, but, you know, everybody wanted to hear how he would be sort of talking about the new strategy for Biogen as he's just come in. He's two months into the job. And I, you know, I really thought, he he seemed to just have a handle on things. It, it sort of felt that way. Like he came from he had been he'd run Sanofi. He'd been uh, with big companies before. He'd taken some time to focus more on you know, sort of smaller biotech investment. In the meantime, coming back to run this company, it seems like he has a lot of ideas. He kind of talked about uh, potential continued cost cuts, um, and then also p- potentially continued or, or some uh, business development. Um, you know, just kind of hearing how he's thinking through where the company is going. Of course, they just got the approval Friday of Lacanamab, which we've talked about at length. Um, he expects and um, it sounds like other people, you know, already expect this as well. We also interviewed the U.S. CEO of ASI on Friday night on the news Um that they should potentially get Medicare reimbursement even as soon as the end of this year. Although other folks like Scott Gottlieb had said it could take longer than that. He was saying even out into 2025, we could be um, still watching CMS working on changing that decision. But um, what was your reaction to Chris Wiebacher? Yeah, I, I saw him present uh, you know later on Monday, Monday morning uh, at, at the conference. They did a um, they basically did kind of like a fireside chat uh, with Chris Schott, who is the the analyst at J.P. Morgan who covers Biogen, so the two of them kind of had like this little fireside conversation, um, obviously without a fire. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I had the same reaction that you did, Meg. I, I was actually I was very impressed with him. I have to say, um, I liked how he he seemed to be pretty candid in his assessment mm-hmm. of Biogen. I it's, he came across as someone who had done his homework, his due diligence on the company. Uh, you know, he didn't come in. Sort of as a sort of a hyper aggressive cheerleader, rah rah, everything is great type of a guy taking over the company. I mean, obviously that would be a little bit weird for Biogen. I mean, I think he sort of acknowledges that you know there is work to be done and um, and there's challenges. But he I, he also sort of I I, I just like the way his mannerisms. I, I it's hard for me to describe, it, but I just thought that he was sort of laid back. He, he sort of exuded this sort of quiet confidence. I felt like um, which I think came across. Uh, as as a positive attribute. One thing that he talked a lot about was the fact that, you know, that the company needs to continue to reduce expenses. Like they're still, their cost structure is still too high for the the business that they are doing. And he, he mentioned that, you know, they're making $5 billion less in profit uh, today than they did in 2019. But yet, um, you know, they're still sort of spending as if uh, they're making a lot more money. So I thought that was a, I thought that was a very interesting comment. 
they're in a really interesting position because, you know, they were a multiple sclerosis company um, and they've, you know, they've really doubled down in neuroscience. But um, it, it sounded like that may not necessarily be the future for the company, especially considering it'll be increasingly important to try to diagnose people early with Alzheimer's and dementia. And so that means potentially moving in some form or fashion into the primary care setting, um, at least for for trying to improve screening. So I don't know, the company could really be kind of changing direction a little bit too, which would be kind of interesting. So who else did you interview over the last two days, Meg? Oh, we had a fantastic lineup. Um, Gilead, Biogen, um, Merck CEO Rob Davis, the first time I met him in person after interviewing him from my attic several times during the pandemic. Very tall guy. <laughs> um, so that was really fascinating. Um, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla, great to see him. Uh, and Moderna CEO Stefan Bunsell, who was actually with us uh, when, when you were visiting us, Adam. Actually, the mention of Oh, Stefan and Albert reminds me of a topic I wanted to ask you guys about, which is, so, you know, there was some news that a headline that came out of the conference from the Wall Street Journal where they had spoken with Bunsell and <clears throat> I guess asked him if he thought it was reasonable, the, the price that Pfizer had sort of put out there potentially for the COVID vaccine when it goes commercial, which uh, Bunsell told us the U.S. government has asked them to prepare for potentially late summer, early fall. So, you know, the government's purchased all these vaccines and right now they're free, provided by the government. But maybe later this year, it'll start to go through more commercial channels. And actually, I just took my six-month-old to his six-month checkup um, at the doctor this morning, and um, she was telling me that they didn't order the vaccine. We can't get the vaccine for the COVID vaccine for our baby through our pediatrician because it's just too complicated for them to go through all the state regulations. But when it's a commercial setting, they'll be able to order it in-house and it'll be so much easier for them. And I was like, wow, that that's really interesting. But um, you know, the the price that has been put out there by Borla uh, was around 110 to 130 dollars per dose, um, which is you know sort of in line with with other vaccines. Um, and and Bonsell said that sounded reasonable to him too. But then the next day there was a letter from Bernie Sanders saying you know price gouging, um, and he's now the the chairman of the Senate Health Committee. And I wonder, you know, we've been focusing a lot on what's, at least on CNBC, wondering how what's been going on in the House, um, you know, with all the chaos over the speaker position, uh, it, how that'll affect businesses. But I wonder for this industry, Bernie Sanders is the chairman of that committee. Do you guys anticipate that that having much of an impact this year? I mean, legislatively, no, which is maybe a little cynical, but I mean, I have... <laughs> the last decade of, of congressional action or inaction to inform what a democratically controlled Senate and a Republican controlled House might actually do when it comes to passing laws. But controlling a committee, especially an influential committee, is power. And I think what it probably means, and we've seen this before, is people, maybe in the future, Stefan Bonsell, being hauled in front of Congress to testify about things. And, you know, that can have if not necessarily, you know, legislative outcomes, it definitely has like PR outcomes. We've seen some awkward moments uh, in, in congressional hearings in the past. Pharmaceutical CEOs are not always adept at this. The, you know, public perception is not on their side, I would argue, in, in 2023, certainly wasn't in 2022. And as the IRA is rolling out, and I mean, I, I think it's silly to look at the midterm elections as a referendum on the IRA particularly, but it does seem to be a relatively popular piece of legislation, at least the way that it's described and perceived um, in the popular imagination. As that rolls out, we'll kind of see how the tenor evolves. And, and 
you can imagine Bernie Sanders seeing something like this or his staff seeing something like this as something to seize upon to keep that momentum going. It seems like the ball is in pharma's court to change that narrative if, if they desire to and if they have the power to, because things have not been going their way, as we've discussed kind of at length, both in terms of lobbying and in terms of legislation and in terms of public perception over the past few years. Hey, Meg. I was curious, like, what do you talk, you, you know, you bring these CEOs on and obviously there's a little downtime before the interviews start live. What do you talk, what do you guys talk about? Um, well, <laughs> as you know, I'm f- fond of avoiding talking about what we're going to talk about um, uh-huh. on air beforehand as I'm always yelling at you guys to save it for the podcast. Um, I, I do the same thing. So I try not to ask them any questions that I like want to ask them on air. So, so typically I just ask them, you know, how their conference is going, how long they're out here or, you know, if I know more about them personally, just sort of getting updates on their lives. But after the interviews is actually the most interesting because like I'll have asked whatever time I have on air with them. But then if they're willing and they have time and their teams don't like immediately swoop in and rush them away, I can ask them a few more questions um, to dig in further um, into what they were saying on air. I mean, it's also I have to have such a balance because the audience is a, a general audience for the most part on CNBC. They're not all biotech specialists. So I can't get so into the weeds as I want to. Um, but then you can kind of dig in a little bit deeper um, after you after you finish asking the questions. Um, and so, you know, I, and I can't share exactly what some of the CEOs said, but, you know, on Tuesday we had Regeneron CEO Len Schleifer, who actually was very candid on air. And I'll tell you guys about that conversation in a minute. We had Novartis' CEO, Vosnera Simon, um, very interesting conversation both on and off air. And um, and then we had Zoetis' CEO, Kristen Peck, which was fun because I never get to talk about pets on air. And we talked about whether people are returning their pandemic puppies. We concluded our coverage with Dr. Rob Califf, the FDA commissioner, which I want to ask you guys about. But before I do that, I want to I want to re- rewind to Tuesday morning. Uh, to Len Schleifer and Vosnera Simon because they have two polar opposite positions on the Inflation Reduction Act and its impact on the industry. And Vaz's is much more in line or in step with like the rest of the way drug companies are talking about this. And he's the incoming chair of Pharma, the lobbying group. Um, so that sort of makes sense. Len has always been Len Schleifer. <laughs> um, right, exactly. And so, you know, you, there's been this there's been this narrative that we've been hearing from companies like Eli Lilly saying that they are making drug discovery or drug development decisions um, that de-emphasize small molecules because the drug price negotiations will happen a lot sooner for those than for biologics uh, and focusing in on biologics. Um, And I wonder if we should just play uh, Len Schleifer's response when I asked him that question. You can't worry about what the pricing environment's going to be, what the Inflation Reduction Act, the negotiations. This is a hard business. It's not like we have a choice of 10 things and we can work on five here or five there. There are, there are a few nuggets that you get every couple of years, and you got to follow the science. And I, I kind of get insulted when people say, well, we're not going to work on a cure for cancer because of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, that's pretty ridiculous. The, the response basically was like, how lucky these companies are to have such choices in the drugs that they are successful in developing. Um, but, you know, Vaz uh, and, you know, we heard this from Eli Lilly in its announcement um, about a small molecule cancer drug say that absolutely does impact um, the kinds of drugs they develop. What do you guys think? I mean, it stands to reason that it would in sort of like a macro way if all decisions were made by actuarial tables. But I think, you know, to to Len's point, 
as he knows very well, and as, as many people in, or as everyone in pharma knows, biology being unpredictable, actuarial tables, I mean, like, companies always talk about shots on goal and maximizing them, which is just like a really nice way of saying we're throwing spaghetti at a wall all the time based upon like the best assumptions we can make about biology. So I, I think Len has a valid point, even if the logic stacks up in the other argument. So um, you guys had an event at J.P. Morgan on Monday night, and one of your big guests there was the FDA commissioner, Dr. Rob Califf. Adam, tell us about how that conversation went. Uh, it was somewhat combative, actually. Uh, Matt Herper, our, our colleague here, uh, did the interview with uh, Commissioner Califf. Uh, and, and obviously, the topic of conversation was the, the congressional report that had come out uh, the week prior, which, you know... Uh, you know, criticized the FDA for its uh, its relationship with Biogen and the way it reviewed Adjuhelm, and we don't need to necessarily go into all that. So, you know, this was this was an opportunity for uh, for us and for everyone to kind of hear, uh, you know, the the FDA commissioner basically comment for the first time. I mean, we you know when 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 we published those stories, we had gotten a, a basically a generic statement um, from the agency, but no one had heard from top officials of the FDA, and so this was the first opportunity. Um, that people had gotten. Um, and I have to say, I was, I, I mean, I don't really like necessarily editorializing about this because I like our reporting to sort of stand on its own. Um, but I will say I, I was not surprised, but also disappointed in that he, you know, his his line of his, he basically defended the FDA and uh, didn't really acknowledge at all that there was anything uh, strange or unusual about the way the the, the agency and its and its uh, regulators acted towards Biogen, the relationship there. Um, you know, he he sort of quipped that, of course, the you know, of course, these House committees came out highly critical of the FDA because you know that's exactly what House committees do when they issue these reports, which I guess is true. I mean, we all know that uh, we all know what politics are like. Um, but at the same time, you know, the report is based on a lot of documents, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of documents obtained both from the FDA and from Biogen, which, you know, again, raise a lot of questions and concerns um, Not you know, that a lot of people have out there, uh, you know, in the scientific community, uh, people who follow regulatory matters. And I, I did feel like he was just a little bit too dismissive. That's interesting. I mean, I thought, you know, his his defending agency staff is... I kind of thought of it the way in a press conference, the coach of a sports team kind of has to defend his players regardless of how he feels about the performance. And, and it ne doesn't necessarily reflect what he's saying in the locker room. I'm overextending this analogy. but So, so we don't necessarily know what Bob Califf and, and the other leadership of the FDA have said to the, the players relevant to the Adjuhelm thing. So there's that. So I think it's fair enough that he would defend them in public. That is kind of his job. Yeah, no, I think that's true, Damien. I, you know, and I actually was funny this morning. I, I, I took a walk this morning, and I actually was sticking uh, this all, exactly the same analogy of sort of the, the, you know, the, the, the team manager or the coach. Um, but at the same time, I think when something goes wrong, the coach takes responsibility. Right. That's what I was going to say. That is a little bit of what was absent is any kind of self abdication. Maybe that's too strong. But the thing that struck me to your point is his if not dismissing, but still characterizing the House report as containing inflammatory language and kind of waving that away as being, you know, part and parcel of, of, of these kinds of investigations in general, that might be true. And we can say that. 
But, you know, him pointing to politics, I mean, he is a political appointee as commissioner of the FDA. So I was kind of surprised that he didn't at least perform deference to the Congress. That could be in part because the committee leaders who presided over this investigation no longer lead those committees because the Congress has changed over in the days since that report was published. But it did kind of strike me as a little churlish for a sitting FDA commissioner to speak so dismissively of something that the elected Congress has said. Meg, you had him on too, right? I did. Yeah. And I asked him, um, I didn't ask him specifically about the House investigation. And that was because I had been told by the show that I would get three questions and I had to ask the three at the beginning. And I wasn't sure I was going to get any more after that. So I did two on Alzheimer's and one on COVID. So my two Alzheimer's questions were um, for him to sort of describe for people with Alzheimer's or, or caring about Alzheimer's drug development, where the field was. And he was a lot more upbeat about it than I expected him to be. I mean, he was honest that it wasn't a cure, but he said he was very excited and, and, and it was a hopeful time. Um, and then I asked him if he or how he responded to the to the reaction to the um, CMS decision around Aduhelm, which some people interpreted as a rebuke of the FDA's approval. And um, as you can imagine, he, he <laughs> didn't quite agree with that. <laughs> he, didn't, he, he said people like to focus on conflict, which I think, you know, it, it's true, but it's also I think that was a sort of widespread <laughs> Um, reaction. Uh, but anyway, so that was it was interesting. But you asked me what I talked to them about when we're not on air. And I <laughs> poor Dr. Caleb, I kept him in the chair after we got off air because I wanted to ask him about how many days I should test myself for COVID when I got home. <laughs> to try oh, what to did avoid. he say? I, I need to know this information. Yeah. Um, he said what I had been thinking, which was five. Um so I tested in my hotel room yesterday before I left. I tested this morning when I got home. I'm I'm worried about giving COVID to my six month old. Um, but I, you know, having been at this conference, I don't know, Adam. Do you think we escaped? <laughs> so or it, it's interesting that you just told you just said that you tested um, you tested at your hotel room before you left because the dominant conversation mm -hmm. that I've had with people uh, as it pertains to COVID here uh, is that nobody is testing. Because nobody wants to know yeah. nobody that wants they to have know. COVID or <laughs> oh, if they, you know, it's like, I don't want to know because what the hell am I going to do if I have COVID? Like, so I know I had that thought. I was like, I'll be stuck. I can't get on a plane. Yeah. But I still tested. OK, so we I ran a poll based on our conversation coming into this week about how many people would be masking at J.P. Morgan. About eleven hundred people voted in this Twitter poll and 63 percent said they did not plan to mask at J.P.M. About 20 percent said yes. And then 17 percent said sometimes. And those are not perfect numbers because I rounded. But I think it was way fewer or way less than 63 percent of people. If we're just <laughs> if we're just talking about inside the West, one like percent, it was like. 95% yeah. like not masked, maybe 5% masked. The only team that showed up completely masked to our interview um, was Rob Califf with his two uh, wonderful folks from the FDA who helped set up the interview. Um, they were masked. Uh, some other people were masked when they showed up, but I'm wondering if that was because they knew I was worried. <laughs> Everybody was very accommodating to me. I I was way over the top. Dr. Caleb thinks I'm yeah. Nuts. When I when like, I came I to see like, you, I so worried. When I came to this. see you, I stood like six eight feet away because I didn't want to get. I didn't. I, I was not wearing a mask, so I was like, all right, I'm going to stay my distance from you and talk to you from afar because I didn't want to risk anything but yeah i because I, I remember last week i said that i was probably going to wear a mask in the halls of 
the Westin, <laughs> and I did not. I, I have to admit that um, I did not wear a mask. We'll see how it goes. We'll update everybody next week. Yeah, if we're if 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 we have all, if there's like two new co-hosts next week and only da- or only Damien doing the show, <laughs> then then you guys will know. <laughs> That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think Miami is a good place for JPM Week. And if not, where do you want to go? You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Maybe.